welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name is Jason Barnard, and that was the new single, Step Back, from Chaz Jankel. Many, many of you will be very familiar with Chaz as one of the core members of the Blockheads and also his solo material. And uh, this two-part podcast will be covering the whole range of Chaz's career, right back from the early 70s and right up to the present. We heard a little bit of that with Step Back. Welcome, Chaz. Hello, Jason. Hello. Do you want to tell us about Step Back? It's uh, great, first of all, to to feature a new song of yours, and that does seem to encapsulate many of your your influences. It does seem to be very much uh, of your sound. Yeah, I mean, what I've realised with me is I I sometimes have very fertile periods in, in terms of, you know, composing and writing, and then I go into little dips, a bit like a sort of, you know, like, hills and valleys so to speak yeah. i was well, a few months back i think it was last summer my wife and i uh, traveled down to barcelona from london we took the train all the way we stayed at a hotel for a few days and at the hotel they, they were playing rare rare soul just in the background everywhere you went there's always and not, I, I didn't even know i mean to be honest i didn't recognize anything really but it all was really good anyway it must have seeped into my consciousness because when i got back home a couple of weeks later, well, maybe not even that long. I, I just started. Pick, I picked up the, my bass and I just started playing the bass riff that's on Step Back. And to be honest, the whole song then grew from there. I had certain things I was thinking about that I wanted to talk about, and I thought, wow, I'd love to get Dave Lewis, who is the, the sax player, one of the sax players of the Blockheads. I thought he'd be great to have as a feature on the track, and that was it. Really, that was it. It was a very uncomplicated song to write. Yeah. They're often the best out of though. Well, yeah, usually I think if there isn't a struggle, you know, I mean, I used to think that there is a struggle involved, um, but it's, you know, I don't have a formula for writing. And often the form of a song is the hardest thing, structure for me to, to, to work out. But in this particular instance, um, it just fell into place. Um, just very grateful for it, really. And the lyrics, they, they do seem to resonate at the minute. Well, I, I absolutely. I mean, that's the, in a way, that's a coincidence. I was just writing from my heart at that moment about, you know, the woes, the problems. If you just grasp anything you can, if you identify with anything you see and say, I want that. Mm. Any object or, you know, this idea you've got to party hard because because everybody else is doing it. You know, everybody is on their phone all the time, just like we are at the moment. <laughs> but, you know, like, you know, I would say particularly the younger generation, they, you know, it's it's a dopamine fix for them. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. and and that's that it's a real issue because, um, you know, likes and not having likes. And so I do mention this in the song, you know, switch off your phone, heal your bones, you know, let the, the sun heal your bones. And, I, and I'm sitting out here and I'm. Well, I'm doing both. I'm on the phone. I'm, you know, the sun is healing me. But, hmm. you know, I really just take equal enjoyment just being in the woods or just being in nature. I take a lot of nature photographs, a lot of uh, photographs of leaves and um, trees and, well, particularly flowers and anything that's alive and just being itself, really. Because, you know, I noticed that the brain is a very sort of... Um, distracting organ in our body i mean you know we we get carried away with this thought that thought this thought i've been reading eckhart tolle of of recently recently and really getting to his book you know the power of now Mm. and he he talks about amongst other things the silence between words the silence between 
notes in a song and says that's really our our essence you know is we come from silence we'll go back to silence when you consider that it's beyond thought it's the silence the dust but everything behind this universe you know i think is beyond thought so to speak we've gone in deep i see what we you know what's happened here but i'm just explaining where i'm up to right now um i think we have to be cautious identifying just because our brain says all oh, sees something we shouldn't just grab it we should be a witness to that think oh do i you know like be conscious be present live in the now live, be, be more present think about do i need that or not is it good for me is it not so i think those thoughts have been uh, th- these ideas have been resonating with me of late and i think those those feelings were at the backbone of step back Brilliant. So what we're going to do now on the show is we're going to go right back to uh, the beginning and then slowly build ourselves up across two podcasts uh, and go in depth in relation to the range of uh, material. And uh, yeah, one of the things that, that some people may not know is actually you had a you know, musical career prior to the Blockheads and one of the bands that you, you played in prior to the Blockheads, was uh, Byzantium. And we have a track, uh, Why or Maybe It's Because, which is <laughs> it's, it's a very, it's a very oh different sound. It's a bit more progressive, a bit more mellower, mm. very, very different to, to what came uh, later. Yeah. Am I right, the origins of that band, was it you at art college? Well, they were, they were a, band, a school called UCS, the, the other characters right. in the band but i i wasn't and i joined the band and um but you know the, the thing was they they were really what i remember about it was they were really just like jefferson airplane that that end of the musical spectrum hmm. you know they more hippie kind of music and the thing was because i was a new boy in town so to speak the, well, the new guy in the band my musical influences i i suppose in a way i i, I hid them for a while but and mine, mine would I would say were more you know Afro-American, um, African, you know like mm. I used to like bands like The Who, The Small Faces, The Rockier Edge, and soulful yeah. British bands, Jimi Hendrix. I liked that as well. But I would say they were more into a kind of soft rock um, with with a sort of jazzy overtone. And I think with Wild Maybe It's Because that I think that was one of the first or one of the only songs I, I actually wrote for the band and i don't even know who ever played it live maybe once but it was um you know i, I remember one there was a producer called um stuart taylor and there was a line there's a line in that song well maybe it's because i say maybe it's because i'm tenacious and he announced to the studio he said he said i've got a better idea about you know how to sing that line he says maybe it's because my bathroom's spacious <laughs> <laughs> which got a collective you know like everyone just cracked up and then i realized you know what maybe i won't use the word tenacious in a song again <laughs> it was a little pretentious yeah was it one or two albums you, you lasted with them i did two albums with them but they they were a band before i met and you know and then they carried on for a while after i left as well was it the realization that it just wasn't a good fit for you that that meant that you left yeah, I, I think what it was, was it dawned on me one time, we were doing a gig at Dingwalls in Camden Town in London, and um, I had bought myself 
what I thought was a very cool looking sort of soul brother suit. But, the, you know, I listen, I was really into Sly and the Family Stone. So I, I was trying to sort of yeah. look like soul brother. Right. And uh, they were all wearing jeans and, you know, and long hair. And, uh, you know, well, I had long hair as well. But, you know, we looked like two different bands. And, um, you know, even then, I think the the musical orientation was was evident. It was they were they were coming from a different place than I was. I did love the harmonies, the vocal harmonies. And to this day, I love, you know, like really good vocal harmonies. And I try to do that myself sometimes, you know, vocal harmonies, you know, Mm. you know, on my tunes. And I love the Beach Boys for that and other vocal harmony groups. So that we did connect there and we got on great as we had a vibe going as well. But as you say, yeah, musically, I think we want we wanted to go down different paths.
when you left, was it about 73? Yeah. Um, that, well, yeah, I think it was absolutely. Was it? I, you know, I sometimes have a problem with, with numbers, um, you know, like trying to get the exact dates. However, um, yeah, listen, I, I mean, I just ambled about. I did lots of different things. I, I was delivering ether to chemists and in, in a, lot, a little pale blue van all over London, bottles of it to chemists, to hospitals. Uh-huh. There was a, I did that for a few months. Um, but I was still living at home with my parents. Um, and I ambled from this to that. Nothing really settled. Um, I played with a band called Red Shoes. I, I did a stint at um, Morton's um, Wine Bar in Berkeley Square playing piano you know, and singing. Um, I ambled around doing different gigs and I think it wasn't till, you know, 1974, was it? I, I sometimes remember, or 75, I met Ian. I met Ian, I, um, Ian Dury. Oh yeah, in the midst, in that whole period, my parents so disillusioned with me, just sort of not really doing anything. They said, uh, you know, this was prior to meeting Ian, they said, um, you know, what, what are you doing with your life? I didn't really have any answers and they so uh, they said, well, why don't you try getting a management trainee course? And I did. And for a short while, I, I was accepted by John Lewis in Oxford Street. And I worked in the lighting department for about nine months. And at the end of that, um, my mother could see I was just literally lying on my feet. And, um, and she said, listen, he, you know, she saw that I'd had a call from Jonathan Kelly. There was a bank. I don't know if you've ever come across Jonathan Kelly. He had a bank called the Jonathan Kelly's Outside. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and I joined that, and uh, we went to Dublin. We just did a few gigs, and um, so I was once again I was a musician again. But you know, life after that was very nothing really happening. I was really looking for a lyricist, to be honest. Mm. And my parents uh, gave me enough money to to buy a keyboard, and I bought a a Wurlitzer electric piano from Morris Plaquet in um, Shepherd's Bush, and I said to the the, the uh, the manager, I said, if anybody needs a keyboard player, give them my telephone number. And then the next day, Ed Spate walked in, who was the guitar player in the Kilburns, and said, um, listen, our keyboard player's just left. And, um, you know, and he was ch- chatting with the manager, and the manager said, oh, well, this, mm. this chap has come, and he's just bought um, a Wurlitzer. Why don't you give him a call? And I did. I gave him, you know, I, and, and, and so I, I, I um, well, sorry, he did. He, he, he gave me a call and he invited me down to a gig at the, uh, the Greyhound in Fulham Palace Road, the pub, where Ian was playing the next night. And I went down and I saw Ian perform and I was absolutely gobsmacked. It was like very raucous, mm. almost Fellini-esque. You know, it was very odd. It was, Ian was in a red um, Tommy Cooper fez. And um, the sax player was literally the, 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 the spitting image of Frank Zappa, to my, to my eyes anyway. After the gig, I just like um, hypnotized and I, and I went onto the stage and I was going down the tunnel where I'd seen the band exit the stage from. And the roadie who was packing up the gear on the stage said, here mate, where are you going? You can't go down that, see, down that way. If you want to see the band, you go around the front way. So I hopped off the stage, followed orders, followed, jumped off the stage, went round to, the, the other way in the, you know, the, the, from to the door, which is just the right of the stage, walked towards the dressing room. And as I was got on my way there, the band are all got their shirts off and it looked like a Turkish bath. It was really steamy. But there was one guy who had, it was sitting down, he had his eye on the door, saw me approaching 
and said, here, mate, do I know you? Well, F off then. (laughs) (laughs) Well, exactly. That was his opening line to me. (laughs) Yeah. And I stood there paralyzed. I didn't know what to do because I (laughs) thought I'd been invited down. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so I sort of turned around and I felt really, I can remember the heat on on my, under my collar. And I just turned around and walked towards the door and then, Ed Spate turned to me and went, oh, hello, mate. You know, he was a Yorkshire and I won't try and undermine him. But he said, hello, is that you, Chaz? And I went, yeah. And he went, oh, hello. <laughs> it was like that. And anyway, I got up. <laughs> he said, listen, we're doing a rehearsal tomorrow. Um, why don't you come down? And I did. And um, I got the, got the gig as keyboard player. And at that point, Ian didn't even know I played uh, guitar. Nobody, they didn't know that, you know, I was a equally um you know like i was part guitar player part keyboard player but um yeah to start with i just played keys you know to play well when i say keys keyboard because i had a Wurlitzer and i had a little phaser that was either on or off so it was very limited in my my palette so let's put it like that was it the fact that you started writing material with ian that that led to the Kilburn and the High Roads disbanding and, and yeah. something new. Well, I think so. I think that I think Ian was just you know worn out just doing um, pubs. He was the king of the pub circuit, um, but because you know opportunities were th- th- few on the ground, it was uh, for, you know for, for the sort of material he was singing, he no late major record label had, had signed him. Um, Kilburn's had actually they had a, a couple of albums didn't they one was called Handsome yeah. I don't really know a whole lot about that period so I don't want to talk about that no. I don't feel unable to but well after a few months of working with, with Ian and, and the Kilburn's I said listen do you fancy writing some songs together and he went oh yeah I'd love to hmm. so we, we started writing some you know so he, he kind of s- switched off from playing live gigs and we wrote we started writing and um, I used to go to his flat. He lived opposite the Oval, literally overlooking the cricket, the cricket ground in Kennington, London. Mm. And uh, one of the first songs, well, we wrote a bunch of songs, but one of the first ones, you know, was um, was Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll. Although I kept trying to shove that lyric under the others because I didn't know how to, how to write the music for that. I thought, how do you get, a, you know, a melody out of that? But, and... Um, hmm. So one day, he, he Ian said, "Here, um, he said, how about this?" He said, "Boom, boom, 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 boom." Shake, sand, drugs, and rock. And I went, "Blimey, that's good!" Because he didn't usually offer up musical ideas, loads of lyrics, but not musical ideas. Mm. So I said, "That's great," you know. So I put the bridge chords together and you know, to keep us anyway. And then you know we, we had a song. and drugs and rock and roll is all my brain and body need sex and drugs and rock and roll is very good indeed keep your silly ways or throw them out the window the wisdom of your ways I've been there and I know lots of other ways what a If all you ever do is business you don't like 
and drugs and rock and roll. Sex and drugs and rock and roll. Sex and drugs and rock and roll is very good indeed. Every bit of clothing ought to make you pretty. You can cut the clothing, grey is such a pity. I should wear the clothing of Mr. Walter Mitty. See my tailor, he's called Simon. I know it's going to fit. You're quite welcome, it is free Don't do nothing, that is cut price You know what they'll make you be They will try their tricky device Trap you with the ordinary Get your teeth into a small slice The cake of liberty demoing at that time ian and i were going to his demo studio called alvic in wimbledon run by al and vic alvic and um <laughs> funny name that <laughs> and um i can't remember if it was al or vic but one of them said to us one day listen ian was playing drums and i was playing bass and other, all the other instruments and Ian was singing the vocals his lyrics he said listen he said listen lads he said um i know it's great bass player and drummer do you do you want to um you know, I think you could give them, you should give them a call, you know, if you want, you know, a hand with your demos. And, and we said, great. So he knew about Charlie Charles and Norman Watroy. So they came down to the studio. And I, the first session we did, I think it was Sweet Jean Vincent, Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll and Blockheads. The song, the song, the song Blockheads, right? Yeah. And um, so, yeah, you know, we played them. It was a great vibe. And then we go into the control room after we played the songs and Blockheads um, is playing on playback. And, and Charlie Charles, the drummer, has got the lyric, or Ian's lyric in his hand. And he's reading through it. And he sees a line, you must have seen parties of Blockheads with shoes like dead pigs' noses. And he looks down at his shoes and he goes, Ian, that's me. He goes, that's me. And he, and Norman goes, he goes, yeah, we're the blockheads. And, you know, and high fives all around. Suddenly, the name of the song has jumped off the lyric sheet as now has become the name of the band, you know, even though there wasn't a band. But they were too, you know, they were to then, let me keep, keep this in sequence. So we then wrote more songs, Ian and I wrote more songs. 
and then we demoed the whole of new boots and panties with um charlie and norman uh, in bermondsey with a guy who was yet later to work with a guy called philip bagnall he had this little damp recording a tiak in a, in a basement of a house in bermondsey and um that's when we demoed new boots and panties and then we went on to the um workhouse in the old kent road and recorded it again so you know and got it for real because it was a proper studio and you know uh, it was actually Manford Man studio. And after we'd recorded it, Ian's management wanted us to go on tour. And uh, we said to Charlie and Norman, would you come on tour? And they said, only if we can bring the rest of our band. They were in a band called Loving Awareness before they started doing sessions. They were in a band called Loving Awareness. And uh, they said, can we bring the rest of our band? And then we'll come on tour. And that was, that was Johnny Turnbull and Mickey Gallagher. Right. And then Ian also brought on board Davey Payne, who was um, a, pre- a sax player from a previous, you know, he played in other bands in pre-jazz things and other bands. Davey Payne had worked with Ian. So that then became, that combination that I've just talked about, that became Ian doing the blockheads for, I think, about 20 years. It just sounds like um, everything just slotted into place. <laughs> Well, you know, like life, it seems like that now because I'm editing the whole thing. You know, there's a lot more pauses and gaps and some head scratching going on. But literally, that was the sequence of events, yeah. Basket. 
Our next song is Sweet Gene Vincent. And you mentioned before that that's amongst the sort of first batch of, of songs. Yeah that you wrote with Ian. Yeah. In terms of that songwriting process, was it the the music that came first, or was it the sort of lyrical ideas, or was it a bit of both? Well, to start with, in our you know, working collaboration, it was always it generally seemed to be the lyrics would come first. Um, I think Wake Up was one of the first songs that, which is a song for Sweet Jean on New Boots and Panties, that was one of the first songs where I actually, you know, had a riff, and I said, hey, you know, check this out, Ian. And uh, he, he probably had the, the idea of writing Wake Up. And it was a very different form. But coming back to Sweet Gene Vincent, I think Ian, as you probably know, was a huge Gene Vincent fan, mm. massive Gene mm. Vincent fan. He could identify with Gene. And I think there's a song, I'm not, this isn't to belittle Ian by any means, but there was a song I think that started with Blue Gene Baby, that 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 was a reference to, to Gene Vincent, and Ian definitely wanted to start slow and then speed up. Other than that, then I wrote to his lyric. I think I've read that he spent a long, quite a, a while crafting those lyrics. Oh, Ian always spent a long time writing his lyrics. You know, he was a perfectionist. You know, as much as he can be, he would. You know, often. You know, we we could have mastered a track. Well, not mastered a track. We could have done a final mix in the studio of a track. And then, you know, two months later, Ian could say, listen, I want to change a line. And he'd go back in, you know, and change. It could just be one word. It could be more than that. But he really, the words meant, you know, he was a total dedicated wordsmith. Let's put it like that. Blue Jimmy.
I've also read that um, Hit Me With Your Rhythm Stick was something that came yeah. out of a, a jam session. Is that the case, or was it? A... Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, interestingly enough, you know, I, I was talking about Wake Up a second ago because mm. it's relevant to this. So at the end of Wake Up, well, no, let's, let me start. Let me backtrack <laughs> a little bit. Yes, Ian, I went down. Ian was renting a house in Rolvenden. And uh, in, he had a Fender Rhodes in the living room and a drum kit and, a, and, a, and a, a drum machine. And he was just jamming you know, the drum machine, keeping a kind of pulse. It had a sort of bossa nova beat-ish. An old Roland 606 for those who, or 78, I think it was a CR78 Roland drum machine. <laughs> and uh, it had, you know, cha-cha and bossa nova and those sort of beats on it. Anyway, he was playing along with that. And I just started jamming on a kind of, like a little kind of rhythmic motif on the Fender Rhodes. And anyway, we hang out, hung out for the day and we, you know, chatted, had a laugh. And, and that night I said, listen, I'm going home. And I went home. I was living in East Coast, not far from Harrow, that part of North London. Mm. And um, we, uh, we, at that point, we, my girlfriend, Teresa, and myself, we, we, we had a house and we were renting a house. And I had a piano upstairs, just an upright piano. And I, I think I was just listening to Wake Up and Make Love, you know, and because I, I really liked the outro and I didn't know why it was. And then I suddenly realized when I was listening to it, the reason I liked it, Wake Up goes, that's the piano outro on Wake Up. It, it, it goes, it's a very quiet, and I thought, I suddenly had this idea, oh my God, if I took that and put it with the riff that I'd been playing with Ian the day before, I get you know, and and so I went, oh my god, this is strong. So I I called Ian, Ian up and I said, look, Ian, you've got to hear this. And he said, yeah, well, come down. I went down to his house, and it was only maybe the next day or two days later. And by that point, he'd moved the piano from the living room into the garage. I don't know why he'd done that, but he had. Hmm. And he said, so I'll go into the garage with him and there's the piano. And he says, I'll be in the house. And, uh, you know, I said, okay. And he gave me the lyric and it was the most succinct lyric because usually you used to have verses, verses, verses. And I used to have to edit it, his lyrics, just to, to make it into sort of a reasonable length. But with this, he just had, you know, three verses and a chorus, uh, two choruses. And, and, and that, that was fantastic. So 20 minutes later, I'm done. I said, and I go into the house. I said, Ian, I said, right, it's done now. You know, and he went, great. So we got the blockheads down the next day. And, um, we, you know, we rehearsed it. And I think a couple of days later, we went into the workhouse and recorded it. And I seem to remember, I think it was probably about nine takes of it, but I think it was take two that was the, the backing track that we used. And very ably assisted by Laurie Latham, I should add, who's the engineer, the recording engineer, who worked with us, well, he, he, he engineered the whole of New Boots and Panties and, and, and then Mr. Love Pants a few years later and Do It Yourself, actually, that album. But he was very integral with, with the kind of raw, warm sound of, of, of Ian and the Blockheads in the early days. And that song's got such power. But did you know you were onto something special after yeah. you heard it? Yeah. You, I don't know how you saw why you said that, Jason, because um, I called up my mum from the studio I said mum we've just recorded our first number one you know this was like three months before <laughs> it went there but there's something you yeah. you know you just the other thing was at that point we had a lot of momentum because we were playing a lot of gigs and we were yeah. play, big gigs you know and university gigs and Ian was, was we you know we were on a roll and um, 
So just to bring out that track at that moment, we had, you know, the, the media on our side and, and, you know, you know, when there's something really great, a great drop drags, a, a, a great, great track drops, tongue tied there. That was it. Mm. The, 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 you know, there was, the, 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 it, it did, it just caught the public's imagination and zoomed up the charts. Deserts of Sudan and the gardens of Japan, from Milan to Yucatan, every woman's every man. Hit me with your rhythm stick, hit me, hit me, Schitter, ich liebe dich, hit me, hit me, hit me, hit me with your rhythm stick. Hit me slowly, hit me quick, hit me, hit me, hit me. In the wilds of Borneo and the vineyards of Bordeaux, Eskimo, Arapaho. Their body to and fro. Hit me with your rhythm stick. Hit me, hit me. Das ist gut, say fantastic. Hit me, hit me, hit me. Hit me with your rhythm stick. It's nice to be a lunatic. Hit me, hit me, hit me.
and it's easy to forget how big you were, you know, for for a year or two. Uh, the albums in that period and and the tours, etc. That must have been something else compared to a few years before. Yeah, you know, in a way, it was wonderful because it was a validation of you know what we'd done. What you know, and I mean, Ian was offering up something very different as well. Back then, there was very few singers talk singing in their you know natural voice. Yeah, it was Charlie Gillett who actually prompted Ian to, to find his natural voice because I was in the middle of doing an overdub on Partial to Your Abra, um, Partial to Your Abracadabra, which is another song on New Boots and Panties. I was actually in the studio on my own with headphones on playing an old guitar overdub. Suddenly the door opens, which is most unusual and, you know, not, you know, <laughs> you don't do that when somebody's, you know, in the middle of recording in strides Charlie Gillett, right? Hmm. He, he, you know, he had, anyway, then he walked, moved out again. I, remember, I, I can remember it to this day. And then he said to Ian afterwards, when he heard Ian's vocal, he said, Ian, why, why, do, you, why do you sound, why do you want to sound like Barry White? <laughs> and that, that did it for Ian. He thought, right, okay, from now on. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. That was the turning point. You know, Ian, you know, found his own voice. Well, well, you know, wasn't afraid to use his own voice. You know. There's two aspects of that. One of which is the sound of of you as a band, which was utterly unique. But then added to Ian's vocals, you know, which were so honest in a way. So you put those combinations together. It's it's just yeah. so unique. You know, he was he was and is to this day totally idiosyncratic. And you know, I think people like the Sex Pistols and the Mad and Madness and you know Jonah Lewis and a lot of acts, you know, really. Mm can say thank you to Ian because even to this day you know I, I don't want to mention bands names but it's a it's a massive bands and they still sing in Americanese yeah. they still you know you know and they come from yeah. Surrey and places like that you know and so Ian yeah. said no I'm not going to do that you know I'm you know I'm from Billericay you know I'm, I'm Billericay Diggy and and you know and he gave a voice to people who don't didn't have a voice really and to a lot of disenfranchised people as well, you know, people who lived on the fringes of society. Plasto Patricia, for example, that's a song which really appeals to a lot of people. So that that was the thing with Ian. He, Ian didn't really care about genres either. You know, he wrote lyrics, and I just tried to paint the right picture for that, just the right environment. Please, please stop it. It likes it. Tickles it. 
sound continue to evolve i mean certainly on on uh, material like reasons to be cheerful part three yeah if you strip the vocals off that and just listen to the instrument yeah. the instrumental side of that it's just like nothing yeah in that period at all <laughs> well look you know i was very lucky because i as i said to you earlier i mean like one of the things that i brought to in soul you know soul you know i mean i yeah. they were great guys kilburns and you know but they, they weren't really into that genre of music or if they were i didn't hear it when i heard the kilburns you know so i kept pushing you know or wanting when i offered up a bit of music you know to ian it would be very funky or soulful you know a lot of the time not always but a lot of the time you know yeah. and because it's a sort of dance track that track you know it, djs could play it so it had almost like a double life yeah. You know, now, you know, and that's why I think it was very popular as was hit me, you know, um, when people go to gigs that, you know, in a way they want to be uplifted. Yeah, they'll sit at home and listen to, you know, songs which are more internalized. But I think when people go out as much as anything, they, they you know, they, they want to let loose and songs like, you know, that can get you maybe out of any, you know, out of a potentially negative state. They're, they're the ones that people want to hear, you know. Anything that they can, and a, and a good chorus, <laughs> you know, something they can sing along with and identify with. Yeah, that song—it's almost like um, a sort of British version of of, of rap. Yeah, in a way prior to rap. Well, that's some people did say that, you know. Um, no, but the, who was it? The art, was it the Art Ensemble of Chicago? There was one bunch of guys that you know, has been claimed they they wrote the first rap song. But as far as Ian was concerned, I mean, yes, I think you're right. Mm. You know. What I realised actually uh, um, through writing with Ian is he didn't have any com- real confidence in himself as a singer. Mm. So what I tried to do, and I did it on Rhythm Stick, was create the music, the the, the lift, you know, the kind of the ebb and flow. I put it into the music, and let Ian just be the spoke, you know, like do spoken word over the top of it in a way, mm. you know. Mm. So, but. I did encourage him to sing more, but in, you know, in that, in reasons, he just says it, you know, he just says those, his, speaks his lyrics. Yeah. But as I say, a lot of the time it's because he didn't have the confidence to sing it. Why don't you get back into bed? 
Reasons to be cheerful. Part three. One, Summer Buddy Holly, the working folly, good golly Miss Molly, and boats. Hammersmith Pally, the Bolshoi Bally, jump back in the alley, add nanny goats. 18 wheelers camels, Dominica camels, all other mammals plus equal boats. Seeing Piccadilly, Fanny Smith and Willie, being rather silly, and porridge oats. A bit of grin and bear it, a bit of come and share it, you're welcome, we can spare it. Yellow socks, too short to be haughty, too nutty to be naughty, going on 40, no electric shots. The juice of the carrot, the smile of the parrot, a little drop of parrot, anything that works. Elvis and Scotty, days when I ain't spotty, sitting on the potty, curing smallpox, reasons to be cheerful. Why don't you get back into bed? Why don't you get back into bed? to be cheerful. Why don't you get back into bed? 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 One, two, three. Reasons to be cheerful. Part three. Health service glasses, gigolos and brasses, round or skinny bottoms. Take your mum to Paris, lighting up the chalice, wee Willie Harris. Man to Stephen Beacon, listening to Rico, Harpo Groucho Chico. Cheddar cheese and pickle, the Vincent Motorcycle, slap and tickle. Woody Allen Darley, Dimitri and Pasquale, bala 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 and Valari. Something nice to study, phoning up a buddy, being in my nuddy. Saying okie dokie, sing along a smokey, coming out a chokey. John Coltrane Soprano, Eddie Celentano, Bona Carlino. Reasons to be cheerful, part three. Reasons to be cheerful, part three. Reasons to be cheerful, part three. Reasons to be cheerful, one, two, three. Yes, yes, dear, dear, perhaps next year, or maybe even never. In which case?
soon after this period you decided to venture and record solo material. Was was that planned as alongside the Blockheads or, or basically taking um, a break? From you know, that? I was being, I suppose, quite prolific. And often sometimes the material I'd come up with wouldn't be suitable for Ian. It might be might be too melodic, you know, cause, because Ian's melodic lack of confidence. And, you know, he had a narrow range, very idiosyncratic delivery, but some material wasn't suitable for Ian. So I, I think it was just natural. I went off on my own, really. Yeah, it was just natural. I went off on my own, um, and um, so I started doing record. I started um, mm. recording on my own. I, I was very lucky because um, because of the success of Rhythm Stick and some royalties, I had enough to buy to build a studio, which I called East Coast Studios, which was in Kensal Rise, and I got together with Philip Bagnall, who I mentioned to you earlier, who who had demoed New Boots and Panties. Between us, we built. The, you know the studio and we had just enough for a, an, an otari 24 track tape machine a mixing board that he got from ireland which coincidentally bob marley had recorded exodus so it had a bit of a heritage this at this desk and um and we set up the studio um and whilst that was being built a m had signed me on the strength of two songs one was i know Corita, and another one was i am i honest with myself really and um, so I was recording them at the, the I was recording I know Creed at the townhouse at that point. That took a few, quite a few weeks. Um, and then when that was finished, I sort of I think this you know the, the studio East Coast Studios was ready for me to work in. And I used to I carried on working on my first album on A and M, which I just called Chaz Jankel, which was spelled C H A S at that point. Chaz Jankel. And, um, and, um, yeah, and you probably know about, you know, the Quincy Jones connection. Um, so, you know, I, I delivered my, you know, my, my version, well, the original to, to A&M. And then there was a girl working there who was a girlfriend of Johnny Turnbull. And, um, one night she took the track home, I I believe, and they invited Rod Temperton Mm. and his girlfriend over to, to, to see them and they played him this you know my Ino Corrida and Rod said oh Quincy's looking for a new track a, a couple of songs for his The Dude album which was actually his last album contractually for A&M oh. so you know a few weeks later I get a call from Los Angeles hello is, is that Jazz Jankel and I said, yeah. And he said, oh, okay, this is Quincy Jones' secretary, Stephanie, here. Um, would you would you be, would you be object if Quincy was to record I Know Corita? And I sort of dropped the phone. <laughs> I, was, I thought, you know, you've got to be kidding. Do I object? You know, and, um, and so, yeah, so we, we had to wait impatiently for, you know, a few weeks whilst recording. And I remember the day that, you know, an, a, 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 um, a messenger arrived at the door of the studio with 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 the 45 single you know and we rushed to the record player and put it on and and and, and saw how you do it because my original was eight and a half minutes <laughs> eight and a half minutes long his was a nice trim 345 with louis johnson on bass and and Herbie hancock on keys you know it was <laughs> he he wasn't taking any prisoners um but it was quite wonderful you know I, I, it was a validation. Ian actually said years and years later because you know it was a bit 
odd for him, I think. You know that his you know his his buddy was now writing songs with you know people. Cover, like Quincy Jones was covering his songs, and he said by he said to me this was many years later, maybe eight twenty years later, eighteen years later. He said, Chad, you know that I know Carino. He said by dint of association, I did very well out of that. <laughs> <laughs> Only Ian could come up with that, you know, those words, I've never forgot, by dint of association. Just 
that was a huge hit on a Quincy Jones version on both sides at the Atlantic. Yeah, it was. That gave you a sort of confidence on your own terms, I guess. Well, it did actually, and you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, I did. I made four albums for you know on A and M. Um, they didn't want the fifth one. Um, you know, I was going all over the place. I was just, you know, I was too. It was too broad for my own good, really. You know, they, I think they always had a problem actually pigeonholing me back then. But it didn't seem to matter to me. I mean, I was always sort of yeah. skeptical about the whole sort of machine, you know, the kind of, you know, the, the, the corporate end, the way, you know, like you're, they present, a record label can, will present you how they want. And, and you're, you know, and you're pigeonholed and, you know, you have to do, a, you've got to be careful that you're not just somebody else's property is what I'm saying. Because, you know, if they give you an advance, You've done, in a way, you've done a deal with the devil, and you have to, you know, a financial advance. You have to accept the consequences to a degree. I think if you've got a ba- in a band, you can mark out your own, you know, you're, you, you've got your team handed, and you've got your own sound. But as a solo artist, you've got to be very cautious that they don't see you as in a certain way and market you and package you in that way, you know. And I think I was bit skeptical about that which is why I, I took my foot off the pedal really i suppose as a, in terms of promoting myself and would just do it when i wanted i didn't say right and now i want to conquer the world it was never anything like that i did do one tour hmm. and i called it the johnny funk band which was a, the name of a song on my second album uh, called chasanova and um and i did a tour and it was great fun i had charlie charles on drums and Norman on bass and you know some other musicians and that was great I lost money but it was you know but hey <laughs> that didn't matter at the time I was a great experience so that was part of that whole period really after your first solo album you actually collaborated and, and recorded with Ian for Spasticus Autisticus yeah so you know I mean Ian, Ian and I didn't we, we kept on writing and you know and I, I kept on performing with the blockheads you know I mean that was my you know my main mm. job really um I I still had my own studio and I'd make my own records and I'd get Norman to come and play bass a lot of the time and and Charlie you know on my songs a lot of the songs on my albums were written with Ian. Plasticus Artisticus that was that was Ian's protest or point that he wanted to, to make in, in relation to the International Year of Disabled Persons. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But, you know, it was banned by the BBC because they thought Ian was having a go at disabled people. They didn't realise Ian was disabled himself. Mm. So it was a complete misunderstanding. Plus, you know, it was too PC of them, you know, like, you know, well, up their own. <clears throat> they were just overreacting and got it wrong. You know, they should have played the song and... Um, um, it was played at the um, Par- uh, Paralympics, actually, um, by, um, it was sung, you know, Spasticus Autisticus yeah. um, at the opening ceremony. So, yeah, um, and Ian and I went to record that song in um, Spasticus Autisticus in, at Compass Point, because Ian had a deal at that point with Polydor. Uh, so Chris Blackwell, you know, wanted to, you know, thought it would be good if Ian came out and worked with Sly and Robbie, um, the, the famous Jamaican rhythm section. Black Uhuru. And so we, he, Ian just took me as a sidekick, you know, and I, I went around. We had only had literally, he just had a few words for Spasticus Autisticus. He had, didn't have any other songs written, just a few scraps of lyrics. Yeah. And somehow we, we managed to get it together. And then we came back and started performing it with, with the Blockheads, but um, literally, they didn't play on the recording of it. Spasticus, I'm Spasticus, I'm Spasticus Autisticus. 
You continued your solo work and continued success. And also it does link in with what you were saying about collaborating with Ian. Glad to know you because that was co-written with Ian. And also another solo hit for you. Yeah, yeah. It became a huge dance hit in America. And to this day, it's still played by a lot of, um, um, what's the word, uh, not elderly DJs, sort of like mature. mature. <laughs> 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 and, you know, um, and even a lot of younger people know about the song. Yeah, it's a kind of... Um, you know, four to the floor kind of club anthem, really. And um, Ian wrote the lyrics, and it was released in the States at, uh, on New Year's, and there was nothing else in the New Year. I think it was 82, 83, I think it was. And it just zoomed up. It zoomed up the uh, the charts, the Hot 100 chart, and it went, went to number one, straight to number one. And Ian and I actually were... At that point, we're actually in Compass Point recording Spasticus or that album, Lord Upminster, that has Spasticus Autistics on it. And one day, Sly comes up to me and he says, um, "Yeah, Chaz, and he's got a, you know, he's got a copy of Billboard in his hand. He says, Chaz, your you know your tune is doing you know really well, you know." And he, and, and I look at it, excuse my accent, and sure. there it is. Glad to know you double bullet, you know, two bullets, you know, like out of nowhere. I think it's thirty in the chart or something. And how? 